Exodus chapter 24. Let's bow for a word of prayer as we look into the Word. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would be active among us, that You would strengthen and teach us through Your Word today. There is so much for us to learn. There is so much for us to consider. We ask that the conviction of sin and that the glories of Your great nature and perfections would be seen by us today. We need You to meet with us in this unique way. And we long, dear Father, for You to be instructing us through Your Spirit. That we would see Christ. That we would see, again, Your nature. And we just pray, God, to this end. Be glorified in the attention that we give to Your Word. And as we spend this time together, I pray that You would make known to us all that we need to see. God, I know that I am incapable of proclaiming your truth as I should to your people. But I pray, God, that you would take your word, that it would go to our hearts and change us. Thank you again that we can gather in this way, in this freedom and warmth. And I pray, Father, that as we do so, that your name would be hallowed as we give attention to the word and as it sanctifies in its work. We will thank you in the name of our Savior. Amen. In September of 1941, 19-year-old John Gillespie McGee Jr. flew a high-altitude test flight in a Spitfire 5 model aircraft. Ascending to 30,000 feet above the earth, the young fighter pilot was overwhelmed by the breathtaking splendor that he witnessed from that vantage point, and he began to put his experience into words. Soon after landing, he completed a poem that he entitled High Flight, which he scratched on the back of a letter to his parents. He wrote, I have slipped the surly bonds of earth, and concluded his poem, I've trod the high, untrespassed sanctity of space. Put out my hand and touched the face of God. Some may detect a tinge of blasphemy in these words, as if we could touch the face of God by merely ascending to 30,000 feet. Yet McGee's words, I think, touch a chord of yearning in the hearts of those who long to experience the presence of God. I reached out and touched the face of God. We were created to walk with God to find our soul's satisfaction and strength in His visible presence. But something far greater than 30,000 feet separates us from Him. Our sin separates us from God. Our pride, our selfishness, our lust and greed, our anger, our lack of love for God, our lack of love for one another. Our sin renders us unworthy to stand in the presence of a holy God. Yet we gather on this Lord's Day in hope. We gather to rejoice in the biblical revelation. Not that we ascend in our strength to touch God, but that He descends in His grace to touch us. We witness this aspect of God's nature in dramatic fashion in Exodus chapter 19, beginning there, God descending on the top of Mount Sinai, where there is thunder and there is smoke and lightning and this unnerving long blast of the trumpet. Remember, the people are cordoned off from the mountain. To touch it is to die. God's presence is so glorious and so holy that the people tremble with dread fear at the base of the mountain. God calls Moses to the top of the mountain to represent the people. He gives there to Moses the law of God, 
And we see some of that summarized for us following from chapter 20 and on. And Israel agrees as we come to chapter 24 and verse 3 and verse 7 to obey the law of God that He has given there. They have seen God in His holiness and in His majesty. They have sensed their sin and now they say we agree to these terms to follow God, to obey His word. In verse 7 of Exodus 24, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. In verse 9 of chapter 24, we read on that Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Verse 15, Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins. You see the marginal note there, possibly some type of sea animal. Acacia wood sometimes called shittim, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. This would be of the high priest. And verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. We see here that the Creator God is at it again. On Mount Sinai, He initiates and He designs the construction of a sanctuary. Verse 8, a place, a unique environment where He will dwell on earth among His people. This glorious presence that must be shrouded in a cloud and can yet be seen by people at the base of this mountain will reside with the people, will come to dwell among them. We see concerning the construction plan for the tabernacle that God does not invite input from Moses here. He does not leave Israel to hold a design contest for a new building. God reveals to Moses precisely how this tent will be constructed and how the service will operate in it. For starters, Israel will assemble the raw materials by means of free will offerings. Verse 2, a contribution from every man whose heart moves him to give. God will reside in the camp and will bring that about through people who choose to sacrificially partner with God's plan. The source of these raw materials is apparently Egypt. The Israelites plundering Egypt as they leave on the night of the Exodus. And you notice here, they're not cheap materials. God's sanctuary is to receive the very finest fabric, the most precious stones, the most valuable metals. And what is the function and the purpose of this tabernacle? It is found in verse 8, that I may dwell in their midst. It will be the creation of an environment where I will dwell. God's presence will go with Israel on her journey to the promised land. He will tabernacle with them. You notice in verse 9, the discussion of the, or the use of this word tabernacle indicating that we have here a movable tent that will go with Israel to the place of the promised land. Now this takes us from chapter 25 
all the way through chapter 31, just laying out the plan for this tabernacle. That's a lot of biblical text. And the Bible is not a book known for throwing away words. We have detailed instructions concerning the design, the building, and the service of this tabernacle. Why on earth should we care about an old tent? Maybe if you're an archaeologist who's obsessed with ancient interior design or architecture or something like that, this might find interest with you. But why this? Why so much text and so much detail do we really need to know about the clamps in the tabernacle? How many they are and what the material is? Do we really care? Wouldn't it be possible for the Bible to summarize this all in three verses? Certainly would be. I think what we need to come to understand is the holiness of this text. That as verse 8 says, God has come to dwell with his people. And you don't skip by that. You stop here and you consider every clamp. At this spot... Heaven touches earth. It is now here that Israel can, in a manner of speaking, touch the face of God. And I believe that we, thousands of years removed, need to stop and to consider, step by step, this place. It's in the Word of God for a reason. Now we won't, let me put you at ease, talk about every clamp and every possible meaning and symbolism of every clamp or board in this building. But I think we do need to linger here and to realize that this is placed here for us, not so that we can know how to construct a tent, but so that we may know about the God who meets his people here. The nation that served Pharaoh as brickmakers and builders will now construct a sanctuary for God. Not preserved here for our curiosity, as I said. Not a mere ancient building plan that we just look over. But it's provided as a revelation of the nature and character and purposes of God. And this account starts fittingly with the most important piece of furniture in this tent. So important is this piece, you could argue that everything else is built around it. You've heard that joke sometimes if somebody has a big piano in their house and they say, we built the house around it. It's kind of funny because you build a house and then you fill it with furniture. Not this house. This house starts with a piece of furniture and everything else is built around that. And that is the Ark of the Covenant. Let me just say with the pictures that we have here, it's intended hopefully to move us a little bit further. Figured that we got wings stuck in the wreath. But uh, that crazy wreath, I, I've tried to get rid of it this year, but it didn't work. Uh, always messing with our agenda, but we'll, we'll figure out a design. If anybody finds a second one, that would solve our problem, but there isn't a second one on earth. That's the only one on earth is that wreath. So, um, At any rate, you're missing the um, wings a bit, but let me just say here, for the sake of all of the pictures that have been assembled this week, these are just guesses. All of this is guesswork. We do not have the detail. And to some degree, I struggle with the idea, should we even show any pictures of it? Because God doesn't give us enough detail. I've gone with it because the Israelites did see it. They did know what it looked like to some degree. And if you can keep that in mind, that all of this is conjecture. It gives us basically the dimensions are pretty close and perhaps something of the idea. Now you see with these angels that they are covered in wings. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, which would indicate what these cherubs, uh, cherubim, look like. We don't know exactly, but we deal here with the Ark of the Covenant. And let me just read, beginning at verse 10, concerning this Ark. They shall make an Ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. That is about three feet, nine inches long by two feet four inches wide by two feet four inches high. Fairly small box. You shall overlay it with pure gold, 
Inside and outside you shall overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. This acacia wood grew in arid regions and was found in the Sinai Peninsula. It was a hard, light, virtually indestructible wood and would have been ideal for what they were doing. We notice in this box, made of this wood and covered in pure gold, that in verse 16 there was the testimony that was to be placed inside of it. That is, inside of this box were to go those stone tablets that bore the ten words of God, the Decalogue or as we think of it, the Ten Commandments, the words that God gave to Moses on the mountain. They were to be placed in there, a reminder of the Word of God, which formed the nation and guided it. At verse 17, we read on, "...you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim, a cherub on each side, of gold, of hammered work, shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim, that's the plural form for cherub, on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. That is, apparently they are to be looking down upon the lid. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel." This mercy seat, or the Hebrew word, is simply covering. It means a covering like a lid. But it was also used, and more pointedly, of the covering for sin. This propitiatory, appeasing cover. A covering of God's wrath with the idea of sin. And this points, of course, to Christ in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, who is our mercy seat. That is our cover. Our propitiatory answer to the wrath of God. In verse 22, we notice here the brilliant glory of God's presence will hover over the cherubim who form God's throne, so to speak. You can go to Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1 to see this idea. The cherubim are, in a sense, the chariot of God or the throne of God as His presence hovers over it. Now take that glorious picture on Mount Sinai, covered in smoke to shield the eyes of the people of Israel that glory will now come to reside over the wings of these two angels in this tabernacle. There's no graven image that is to be crafted to represent God. God's living presence will hover over this ark. It will glow there. His glory will be with His people. We move to the second piece of furniture, the table for bread in verse 23. And you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. That is about three feet long, a foot and a half wide, two and a half feet high, or two and a quarter feet high. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table shall be carried with these. 
And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. These flagons or plates or pitchers that's sometimes translated in bowls are used for drink offerings poured over the sacrifices at the central place of offering, the altar. Possibly these are there as symbolic ideas of drink offerings, or perhaps they were actually used at the altar. In verse 30 we note there, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me. This speaks of those two rows of six loaves of bread, think low, round loaves of bread, that are there to represent the people of Israel, it would appear, and probably to represent fellowship in the presence of God. We move then, thirdly, to the lampstand in verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, that is a, a sort of exterior kind of leafy protection of a plant, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it, and there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. That is, it will mainly be shining in one direction, not backward. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. That is, all of it will be about 75 pounds of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. So God includes instruction to Moses which we do not have. The practical function is obviously to give light to this tabernacle which has no windows. The symbolic meaning is left up to conjecture. Perhaps we should see here Jesus as the light of the world, but we could go on all day about what the symbolism here, which is really not revealed to us. We simply have this amazing candlestick. We come then to the tabernacle itself, having discussed these three pieces of furniture. In verse 1 of chapter 6, in this graphic that we have here on the wall, we have a picture from a distance of the overall tabernacle structure, a model that is built of it. And again, with somewhat conjectural as to how precisely it looked, but basically in this form, as you would see it from a distance. But learning about it specifically in verse 1 of chapter 26, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen, and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain 4 cubits. All the curtains shall be of the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain. With fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. The loops. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. This first layer of high-quality fabric, this first uh, covering of fabric, it looks obviously very boxy here, uh, but there's that first covering of fabric that is of high quality, and it is consisting of ten massive sheets that were joined by fifty golden clasps and then draped over this acacia wood frame. 
Over top this layer of fine fabric was stretched out a second layer. Uh, This outward frame, you can kind of see the depicting here of these draping fabric, the second being more coarse than the first layer of goat skins. And then as we come to verse 7, you shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. And you shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single hole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, you shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. That's the main point here. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. So the idea here is just this simple, coarse fabric covering to protect the tabernacle. At verse 15, we read on, You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of a case you would. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons, and for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, 20 frames, and their 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six frames, and you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear, and shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top, at the first ring, Thus shall it be with both of them, they shall form the two corners, and there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, sixteen bases, two bases under one frame, two bases under another frame. And you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frame, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold, and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. And you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it you were shown on the mountain." So in other words, we're not supposed to be able to go out and build this today. There's plans we don't have, but you get the basic idea. There is this, as you see here, the tearaway. There's a simple frame of wood. And all of this covered in gold. And then there are these pillars that will hold a curtain, and two curtains, one here in front of the Ark of the Covenant, and one curtain here to divide the holy place. Uh, All of this put together and assembled something like a big Lego set. All of these frames, you just put the boards in them and they all set up and connect together with these latches and clasps. And you set up the structure and then drape it in these three layers of fabric. At verse 31 we read, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia, overlay with gold, with hooks of gold, with four bases of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place, and you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. So this is all depicting here, this screen, kind of in this purplish color here that would be extended across, but there are these posts that will hold up these curtains And this curtain will divide out the most holy place where the ark is 
from the holy place where there is the candle, the table, and we have not yet discussed the altar of burnt incense, and then there will be this exterior curtain. Now pay attention. It starts to all get a little muddled about this point, doesn't it? But listen carefully. Verse 36, You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, embroidered with needlework. No cherubs. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of cassia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. Just note that. We come then, after the discussion of this tabernacle and its structure, to the outside and encounter, first of all, in verse 1 of chapter 27, the bronze altar. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on the four corners. Its horn shall be of one piece with it, and shall overlay it with bronze. You notice here the horns on this brazen altar. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. A net or a, we call it a, a grill. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of a case you would, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the ring so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. And you shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain. So shall it be made." This seven foot six square altar, about four and a half feet high, has four horns on it used for binding live animals to the altar and perhaps also aiding in keeping slaughtered animals from sliding off when there was a lot of work being done. The altar was hollow, a space provided apparently for firewood and for the ashes. And then as we go further back then to the courtyard itself, we find in verse 9 of chapter 27 that you shall make the court of the tabernacle on the south side of the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen a hundred cubits long for one side. It's 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks and the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars 20 and their bases 20 and a of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. And on the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits and their three pillars and their three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long, a blue and purple scarlet yarn and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. Notice hooks of silver, bases of bronze. Just note that. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits and the breadth fifty and the height five cubits with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all, all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. 150 feet length, 75 feet wide, with a 7 foot, 6 inch high curtain all around. Thus obviously blocking any vision into the tabernacle by the people on the outside. The fence cordoned off Israel. For reasons that are mysterious to us, we now come to discuss the oil that goes back in that lamp. Why here? I don't know. But in verse 20, we read, You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. 
in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statue forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Let's think through this for a minute. As I mentioned, this is not given to us simply for our curiosity. It's meant to slow us down and to think. It's meant, I believe, for meditation. Now, the way that I'm going to go with this in the time that remains as we can contemplate a bit further is not the way that many have gone through history. And that is to find in every clasp, in every base, in every board, in every piece of fabric, some mysterious meaning pointing us to Christ. There may be meaning here that we will be learning throughout all of eternity. I don't know. I, let me be the last one to say that I know all of what God symbolizes here. But what I can say, I think authoritatively, is that He does not fill in those blanks for us in this text. There might be some things that we do see, such as Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, that indicate this is all obviously pointing forward. But I think what we need to do, rather than to get our nose two inches away from each of these pieces, is to step back and ask the question, what is God saying about Himself and about His people? What is the message in this tent? This is not an afterthought. This is not a casual reference to a few pieces of furniture in a tent that might be useful to you. There is another tent that is mentioned, I think, along these lines. It's just casually mentioned because it's a temporary tent. But this tent has special meaning. And that special meaning says you must pay attention to every single piece. Because it says something about me, God says to Moses, and it says something about my people. Israel is serving God now, not Pharaoh. But who is this God Israel serves? Remember the call to Pharaoh? Let my people go that they may serve me in the desert. What are they doing out there in the desert? They're carefully constructing this tabernacle as a place where they may serve God. Who is this God? Who is this God that we serve? Our goal here is not to run out and build a replica. Although, have at it if you'd like. It's an interesting process. I've done it once. The purpose here is to teach us who God is and how sinners can enter His presence. I will dwell with them. We learn in this text, that we serve a God of transcendent holiness. Unless we skip over this as meaningless architectural discussion, we must see this point. We will see this point. He is a God of transcendent holiness. There is a spatial separateness that God structures into this whole thing. There are two central points of layout which we see in this graphic before us. You'll notice here, as you measure this out, that in this half, the central point is right dead center at the Ark of the Covenant. And then doubling that, going to this half of the whole complex, the dead center is at the altar of burnt offering. I don't think that this is a mistake. But I think even as the text plays out, there is great emphasis placed on these pieces. Not only as the text plays out, but as the arrangement is made in spatial matters. God is saying at the heart of all of this is the Ark of the Covenant and this altar of burnt offering. The Ark and the holiest place are constructed to reveal this transcendence and holiness of God. It is a place that is separated by a curtain. And as we will come to learn later, no one enters behind that curtain but the high priest one day a year. And after much preparation, Leviticus 16. This is the most holy place where the presence of God resides. 
And you will notice, and if you think back on what we have read in this lengthy reading today, that the metals and the fabrics become less expensive, less radiant, as you move away from this holiest place, less precious and fine as you move outward. So with the ark, it is covered in pure gold. And dividing curtains that separate people from this most holy place, there is woven in cherubim. That is, this fabric is very fine fabric, and there is great artwork put into it. As you move outward to the other veil, the veil that covers the entrance into the holy place, there's no cherubim crafted into, woven into that fabric. And the curtain that hangs this separation of the most holy place was in what kind of bases? Gold bases. As you move to the bases here, they are bases of silver. And as you move to the bases that go around the whole complex on this fence, they are bases of bronze. As you move away from the altar, the metals become less precious and the fabric less fine. The material over the ark is of the highest value. The next material becomes less value and the outer covering the least valuable and the most protective from the elements. The ark and all furnishings near the ark are made of pure gold, but the altar and the laver are constructed of what? They're constructed of bronze, as are the pillars and the bases holding up the exterior fence. It is as if to say when we deal with the issues of man and his sin, when we deal with the issue of man and his fallenness and his separateness from the holiness of God, we deal in bronze, but here we deal in pure gold. There is this transcendent holiness of God that is demonstrated in this construction. And you'll notice not only the materials, but also the dimensions. This place right here is a perfect cube. 15 feet, 15 feet, and to the ceiling, 15 feet. As we move out from there, the dimensions become less ideal. The holy place being twice the length and the courtyard twice the length and with no roof. And so as we move out from that place, the dimensions begin to spread off the blueprint. And the point in all of this, I think, is that God is holy and distinct. And His glory is above all else. The place of greatest splendor is the place where God resides. And that presence is with us. And the flip side of this transcendent holiness of God, we learn secondly, is that we serve a God of merciful imminence. Transcendence, His distinctness, His greatness, His beyondness. But we find in all of this structure as well that we serve a God of merciful imminence, of closeness and proximity to us. The God of transcendent holiness moves to dwell among His people. In the beginning, he created a garden of delight in which he walked with man. Sin has locked the door of Eden, which is guarded by cherubim with flashing swords. But here at the tabernacle, God creates a spot of heaven on earth. This is, as one has put it, a piece of holy ground amid a world that has lost its way. Here, heaven has touched earth. And wonderfully, this place moves. It's not stuck on Mount Sinai. You don't have to go there where God permanently resides on earth and to visit Him there in a pilgrimage. He's not restricted to this permanent house like a pagan god. Not stuck on Sinai unencumbered with the travails of His people, this God of great transcendent holiness will walk with them. He will dwell among them and He will go where they go, in fact, leading them where they should go. 
You do not build a shrine and stand this God up on a shelf. This God moves with you, never leaving or forsaking you. Even when this place rests eventually in a temple on Mount Zion, its carrying poles remain in place. I don't know if it's wishful thinking or how much there is behind it, but I know I've not read, but there are articles that will argue the point that in fact in the temple, the tabernacle, was the interior building. It's possible. The point is, however, it was always ready to move. This is good news. This is such good news. God has come near. He pinpoints a spot on earth where His physical presence with His people is restored. But we have to also say, in light of all that we're seeing here, this doesn't mean we then just go skipping thoughtlessly into the presence of God, does it? Thirdly, we see that we serve this God of wonder as sinners. There's only one entrance into this. Where is it? There's no windows. There's no doors around the outside. There is one entrance, and that is here. And in that one entrance, everything filtered in this direction, by the way, just a side point, but with your back to the sun, putting your back to one glory and setting your face to another, you enter into this place and what is the first thing that everyone sees as they enter in? It is this altar. It is this place of death. It is this earthy, bronze altar, which reminds everyone as they walk in, every priest of sin. Here, animals must die to shed blood so that sinful people can enter the presence of God. God goes with His people but we must approach Him as sinners and on His terms. An altar for burning sacrifice, a veil for limiting access, a second veil from further limiting access. We are sinners and must come to God carefully. We learn then, number four, that we serve a God of redeeming grace. We realize in all of this approach to God as Christian believers, as those who have come to understand Jesus Christ and come to saving relationship with Him, we realize that in Christ there is this entrance into the presence of God. Turn again to John chapter 1 and verse 14. Or quote it in your mind. Here we find an amazing reference to Christ and His connection to this whole tabernacle system. We must hasten through to this. In John chapter 1 and verse 14 reads, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As I've mentioned in the past, and I know we'll mention, I'm sure, again, The word became flesh and the Greek word tabernacled, skenao, tabernacled among us. Those who translated the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language used this very Greek word to translate tabernacle. Jesus Christ tabernacled among us. The creator of John 1.1 comes among his people and brings heaven to earth. Jesus is the new tabernacle where man can meet with God. Jesus is not made with metal and wood and fabric. He is made with flesh and blood. And in His flesh, He becomes the sacrifice for our sins. You remember the day that Jesus dies. There is that large inner veil. At that point, depending on what you read, at least four inches thick fabric and 15 feet high and that veil is shred from top to bottom by the hand of God. Not the day Jesus is born, 
But the day that Jesus dies, when the sacrifice for atonement has been completed, the last sacrifice offers his life and dies, and that veil is shred. Matthew chapter 27 depicts that for us. And in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, we read that many priests came to know Christ as Savior because of the splitting of that veil. A fissure was made that provided access to the ark. The glory of God had long by that time departed from his place above the ark. But on that day that Jesus dies, that veil is split. And the access to the presence of God is now a whole other thing. The death of Jesus renders the old order obsolete. Not because it was inferior, but because its function was to point forward to Him. He is the one who tabernacles among us. He is the presence of God with us. Jesus is God and is the one who ushers us into His presence. Emmanuel is His name. God with us. 25, verse 8 of Exodus. I will dwell with you. All of this, let me remind you, was not put together at some late date by someone concocting a fancy story, but was rather written by the hand of God. There are thousands of years that separate the building of this tabernacle There are thousands of years of the worship of the people of Israel using this tabernacle slash temple to understand these principles of God's majesty and transcendence and imminence and their own sinfulness. Thousands of years that divide writer from writer and we come to this day on which Christ dies and that veil is split. This is the hand of God. This is the story of God. It is to the person of Jesus Christ that He points us. And if you have not come to understand that this is who Jesus is, the way to God, by being the sacrifice for your sin, and by being the one as priest who can usher you into the presence of God, you need to see this truth and embrace it. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the final priest, the final sacrifice. He is God with us, and He will provide the forgiveness of sin as you come to place your faith and trust in Him as He enlightens you to do so. And now for those who know Christ in this saving way, who have come into the presence of God through the saving grace of Christ, where is the presence of God today? God resides in heaven. Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But is there no place here in this earth? We know the New Testament teaching, and I won't belabor these points but 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 2, and what we looked at it just a few weeks ago in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27. What is the hope of glory? It is Christ in you. The Spirit of God has taken up residence in a new temple. That temple is the body of the saved believer. The one who has come to saving faith in Jesus Christ becomes the temple of the Spirit of God who dwells within us. We don't sin and wonder if God is looking over our shoulder. For those who know Christ as Savior, we sin against the God who dwells within. We are not divine. We've not been given some spark of divinity that is humanly oriented. But there is a unique and mysterious sense in which we have been hidden with Christ in God and indwelt by the Spirit of God. And so there is only one thing to do in light of this tabernacle, and that is to make sure that every base and every board and every clamp is in order. There should be no private closets 
in our life. There should be no messy, holy places and no destruction in the most holy place. We are to walk in the presence of a holy God with an inner life that is pure and beautiful. And here we come to God for mercy. Because knowing that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we know that we fall short and that the Spirit of God is not at home in the thoughts of our mind and the words of our mouth and the actions of our bodies. And so we gather on this Lord's Day to say that we are the temple of God. There is no building that God instructs us to build. We are the building of God, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us by His Spirit. And so we gather as His people to seek repentance and confession and to rejoice in His mercies because He dwells with us. And we come to say, this isn't the end. There is a glorious day that awaits us when this body, this mind to which sin clings, this body to which sin clings will be fully redeemed, fully glorified in the presence of God. We come together as God's people on the Lord's day to say there is this hope. There is this future prospect that one day the work of salvation will be complete and God's dwelling will again be on this earth with men, but now it won't be in one 15 by 15 by 15 square. It will be in a square that reigns over the whole earth. And I do invite you to Revelation chapter 21. What does this cubicle room mean to us? It sets in order a pattern for which we hope, to which we look. Revelation chapter 21. And I'd like first to look at verse 3. I'll just read it verse 1 to get the flow. 21.1 of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Here we come back. But this is a new day. It's a new heaven. It's a new earth. And it's a new cube. For verse 16 says of this descending heavenly city, the city lies four square. 21.16, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. And this cube is built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, jasper, and sapphire, agate and emerald and onyx, carnelian, and chrysolite and beryl and topaz and chrysoprase and jacinth and amethyst and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. In this cube, there is nothing but perfection. And this cube rules the whole universe. The dwelling of God one day again will be among men. There is a day, and we gather in hope of that day, 
as we seek to purify our souls to be the abode of the Spirit of God, anticipating that day, we await that day when heaven will slip its celestial bonds and touch the face of earth. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we come into your presence with gladness of heart. We come, I trust, Father, this day with some sense of awe at your holiness and your majesty. We pray, Father, that you would purify us, those who know you as Savior. Please help us to take careful account of the fact that our bodies are the temple of God. And I pray, Father, that we would take careful account, any who know you not as Savior, that Jesus Christ is the dwelling of God on earth. That he is the one who is the final sacrifice and the only way into your presence. I pray that you will draw to yourself anyone who knows Christ not as Savior, who has not come to a place of personal faith, embracing Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords and Savior of his people. God, I pray in your merciful grace that you will draw us all to yourself, that as we have studied through this lengthy discussion, the tabernacle of God, that none of us would walk away with any other desire than to be closer to you, to walk more in your holy presence. God, may we come in fear and repentance as we pinpoint that central spot of the altar of burnt offering. And may we come with awe and joy as we pinpoint your glory above that ark and know that all this has been made for us in Christ. May we rejoice and may we hail the power of his name. It is through him that we pray. Amen.